ברוכים הבאים בשם השם, ברכנו לכם בבית השם. Welcome to our Wednesday night cheer. Pasha's boy. Shabbos before Yud Shvat. And as we know, Shabbos is a day that Mine Mizborche Beikula Yemen. Shabbos is a day that all days of the week are blessed. Therefore, Being the Shabbos prior to Yud Shvat, there's a Shabbos in which the days of the week that come to follow are blessed by the Shabbos. Shabbos itself is referred to as Pashas Boy, Shabbos Boy. The days of this week are known as the days of the week of Pasha's Boy. Today being the fourth day of the week of Pasha's Boy. If one would write in a letter the date of the letter they write, Reviv Seder Pasha's Boy. The Rebbe, the Rebbe Makopanim, when they would write in letters, they would write the date. It's not normal. Box is going. Well, it was gone. It was a waste of money. The Rebbe would write Ravi. For example. Let's say that, and the Rebbe would write a certain phrase of the upcoming Parsha that would, in essence, A, capture the theme of the Parsha, and B, the theme of the Rebbe's letter. However, Shabbos does not only connect with the upcoming week, with the past week, but also with the forthcoming week. 
And therefore, although the week in which we are in now, we refer to as the week of Bay, but Bay also blesses the coming week, which is the week in which Yud Shvat is. We know this also from many different customs of the Jewish nation. customs of the Jewish nation amongst the customs is the custom of a yard site a yard site is a day a cup please which we dedicate we can't call it celebrate to the memory of the loved one that passed on that day. And there are customs also on birthdays. A day which is a milestone in our day, in our lives. Each year a person has a birthday providing they were not born on one of those dates that only come every every few years, being that the Hebrew calendar, not every month, has 30 days. Some have 29. And there are times that there are some months that have a 30th day only every few years. If someone's born on that day, they obviously only have a birthday every few years. Ishkhedish Tevis, sometimes it's two days Ishkhedish, sometimes it's one. That's one of the examples, Kislev, it's one of the examples of a month that sometimes has 30 days and sometimes not. Prior to, before we start the actual shir, we'd like to dedicate this shir to Refua Shalema, Kreva, to Reb Yitzhak ben Sarachana, an extremely dedicated and devoted father, Grandfather, great-grandfather Baruch Hashem. He merited only a few short months ago to be sandik by a great-grandchild. A Jew that went through major mysterious nefesh in Russia, and etc. And is in need of our tefillahs and of our prayers. And one of the methods in Judaism, when one is not well, 
is prayer, Tera, and Tzedakah. Laila Lazman Tzedakah, he usually. Night is not usually the time for Tzedakah. But Tvila, usually Tehillim, we don't say at night either. So we'll dedicate at least the Limit Atera this year in his Schus. And in that merit, he should see a Refua Shleima Kreva and Bizeche Tarichas Yam Vishanim long, happy years. Amen. Pashas Bai. Technically, should be celebrated in a very, very great way. <coughs> Celebration of Pasha's boy should technically be like Simchas Teda. You may ask why. <laughs> in case you haven't already. The first Rashi that we learn when we learn Chumash and Rashi in the beginning of the Teda Breshis Amar Yitzchak says we did not need to begin Let us not misquote. The Haskos Ateda, we did not need to begin the Teda Elo Me'achidish Hazel Lachem. This material. When is this Pasuk said? This being the first mitzvah, she mitzvah is Shainish in the Tavo Yisrael. This being the first mitzvah that the Jews were commanded. When was this said? This is in Pasha's Bay. Says Rabbi Yitzchak, <coughs> Teda is Lashon Heira. Teda is the Lashon of a lesson. And we must therefore learn and derive a lesson from every word and every in- sentence that the Teda tells us. In that case, We need to see and to learn words of Teda by learning things that are relevant to us, to our Avedah, to our service to Hashem. And therefore, by the Teda beginning, telling us about the creation telling us about the story and the happening of our forefathers, telling us about everything else that went on throughout the Chumash of Bereshis, technically, we need to delve into this and to see what lesson is this actually teaching us. Is this actually something that we need to learn? Or do we just need to hear the mitzvahs? 
Therefore, Rabbi Yitzchak said, according to his opinion, you might not have needed to start the Teda from Bereish's Bara, but only from Achidish Hazelachem. Which talks about the first mitzvah, the mitzvah of Rishchidish. Let us, though, tell us that the Pasha is called Pasha's Bay, because it begins with an episode of Bay el Paray. Come unto Paray. Now, technically, the Almighty talking to Moshe to go meet with Paray, he should say, Lech le Paray. Why did he tell him, boy, come to Paray? The Almighty says, I am there already. I am waiting for you there. Come join me there. Come let us teach Paray a lesson. What was Moshe's doubt? That Hashem is going to accompany him there. And even more so, what was his fear? If Hashem is sending him, why be frightened? In the time of the Tzemach Tzedek, the third Chabad Rebbe, there was many decrees that went on in Petersburg in St. Petersburg Russia and there are certain times that the Samachsedek himself journeyed to deal with these decrees against the Jewish nation and there were times he sent his sons this particular time he sent Absalman and Abmesha two of his sons to go hash out and deal and nullify the decrees. <coughs> Excuse me. Usually on such a mission, being truly devoted chassidim to their rabbi, to their father, they did nothing else but the mission. There was no time for anything else. There was no sightseeing. There was no sports events. There was nothing else really to happen except for davening and learning and taking care of what they were sent for, the mission to be accomplished. This particular trip, oddly enough, a family was making a wedding and they were asked to officiate over the wedding. And they agreed. And not only agreed, but the son of Zalman sat down, immediately began to write Ksuba, he wrote up everything, all the wedding documents that were needed. had everything prepared, did the chuppah, made the blessings under the chuppah, 
And they even partook a little bit of the actual festivities. The next morning, the parents being so honored by such honored guests, such a merit to have these people officiating the wedding, they brought the chasen kala for a blessing again to these holy people. And they brought the chasen kala to the hotel room with Zalman of Meshawar, They brought along, of course, a nice little buffet, <coughs> some cakes and delicacies. They also brought along a violinist, one of the violinists that performed by the wedding the night before. And they knocked and they were welcomed into the room. The violinist was playing a very pleasant melody. And the rabbis blessed the chasen kala. And then, Ibn Zalman turned to the violinist and he complimented. He told him how beautiful he played. But within his words, A understanding person was able to derive he had a request he had a request of another piece of music <coughs> so the father of the bride caught on right away and he said does the rabbi want any particular song? And he said, the musician said, I am uh, I'm a Jew. I know a lot of Jewish music. The Zalman told him, this is a difficult song, I'm not sure if you're going to know it. He says, please, I probably do. And he told the violinist, on the Kippur night, in the shul, we opened the tefillah with the Kol Nidre, a beautiful, melodious, enchanting song. Would you please play that for me? Immediately, the violinist said, no problem. And he began the tune. And he played it through. And as he played it through, and he finished the last notes, as he was playing, Reb Zalman put his head down in his hands. And finally he finished. Reb Zalman raised his head up. You could see he was in rapture. And he looked at the violinist and said, Could you do it again, please? The violinist was very, very excited to be 
to have done it so well, he did it a second time. And as he finished the second time, again he lifted his head up and said, would you please repeat it once more? And the violinist figured, on Yom Kippur by night, we sing it three times. He's probably implying we should sing it three times here as well. He gave it all he had. On this third time, he played his heart out. When he finished, he was sweating. He was exhausted. He put everything into it. Oddly enough, though, when he was asked to play it a fourth time, now the hosts are starting to get a little edgy. Is he making fun of the violinist? What is he trying to do here? But to much to the chagrin, he asked for a fifth time, and a sixth time, and ultimately a seventh time. After the seventh time, the violinist put down his bow and just broke down. <coughs> he began to sob and to cry and to he just couldn't come to himself. He was not he wasn't able to stand. And it was obvious the violinist had a story. <coughs> the Bzalman turned to his hosts and the rest of the guests to bid them adieu. And as they all left, the violinist stayed behind. And the violinist told his story. And we know the story only because when the violinist came out, he repeated the story to all the assembled. He said, 20 years ago, I was always a musician. 20 years ago, I was sitting with a group of fellow of Jewish boys, some musicians, some Jewish, some not actually. And we were partying and we were playing and we were music and back and forth. It was a jolly evening. The jolly evening continued for a second day. And the problem was the second day was Erevim Kippur. But the mood and the spirit was so great and so high, while the Chazan was singing Kal Nidre and Shul, we were still sitting and partying and playing. I guess, I guess he says, that once you desecrate Yom Kippur, and you don't get struck down by lightning, I guess you think you can keep going. And my entire Judaism went downhill from there on. And here I am 20 years later, without kosher, without anything. And apparently this Rav, this Rebbe knew 
that it was Kol Nidre that brought me down and it would therefore be Kol Nidre that will bring me back up and it was only after the seventh time that I played it did it bring me to such a level of tshuva of remorse that I was able to once again find my way back to where we belong. Similarly, a hundred years later or so, there was a chassid of Geshenber. He's a Mashpia in Nezhen. Nezhen is the burial place of the Mitzvah Rebbe, the second Chabad Rebbe. And in the yeshiva, there was a boy. that lacked um, let's leave it at respect and love for the studies and therefore was constantly looking for ways to get out of what he had to do Evgeshenberg looked away of everything Everything the boy was doing, he saw that the boy was going in the wrong direction, but he turned a blind eye to everything. <coughs> everything except for the Tanya Shir. When it came to the Tanya class, Geshemberg was very strict. Made sure he followed, made sure he listened, made sure he came on time. Didn't leave early. Years went by, let's put something on it. Years went by, and this fellow, of course, left Yeshiva, left the system, left Judaism. But he didn't have, happen to meet Abgashin Bev many years later. And he mocked him and he laughed and he says, Ha, I'm getting better. Why were you making me crazy? Worthless. All your noise and all your disturbing, all your screaming, all your yelling was for nerf, it was for naught. Look what became of me. Geshen looked at him and said, I must tell you. Eventually, you're going to turn 120 years old. And when you do, you will need to return your soul to its maker. It's not good. Yes, it has a funny taste. It tastes raspberry ish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But this is good. When you return the soul to the soul to its maker, you're going to come into the judgment. 
when they judge you, they're going to see where you were. And for many years, they're going to work on making you repent to become a Jew again. Then a few more years in purgatory, they will work on you. Huh? Why? Let's see the side. In Gehenim. A few more years for you to know what you did wrong. A few more years to repent for the mitzvahs that you didn't do. And then there would be a few more years for all the times you didn't listen in class. So those first sets of years, I can do nothing for you. I at least tried to save you that last set of years that you shouldn't have to go and burn for another those last few years for not listening in class. <coughs> this obviously made a tremendous impression on him, how this person was so sincere, and he turned around his life. We see, therefore, when Moshe Rabbeinu comes to Pari and is summoned Bayel Pari and warn him, the Almighty says a very strange expression. Why should you come? I hardened his heart. <sighs> So in essence, it's telling us, the reason I want you to come and warn Parai is because I hardened his heart. It's not the reason. It doesn't make sense. Just the opposite. If the heart was hardened, why warn him? It's not getting anywhere anyway. The Almighty is hardening his heart against the warnings. So why even do this? Why even go and why warn? Perhaps we could say this warning was not so that Pari should listen and send the Jews out. Because we know already before the Almighty hardened his heart. And we know already before with all the seven threats and the seven plagues. Plagues, right? Not plagues. Plagues. (laughs) The seven plagues didn't affect him. The idea was that it should be brought up in Egypt. What's Miss Alel? Is Alos, is Halalti, says Rashi, is Sichakti. It's a play on words, but it's like a form of entertainment on their, on their, on their, Cheshman, uh, as we say. So through these warnings, you have the concept of the Sichak, his Halil, how the Almighty 
tortured literally Pare, and showed Pare he has no power. He's powerless. The warnings though, don't show that. When you warn the person, threaten the person, the person thinks, you know, <laughs> I'm real, I really have a tremendous power, and I'm being threatened because this way they think that maybe they'll stop me. And also, I think that I have the key. I hold the key to get the Jews out. Therefore, the Almighty hardens his heart to show him, no, you don't have any keys. So therefore, the reason of Baal Pare and warn him is really indeed because the heart of Pare was hardened regardless. And therefore, what happens? Asher salalti b'mitzrayim, says the Almighty. Everybody will know exactly what I accomplished, what was done in Egypt. And this will only happen if you warn him, and we bring the plagues, and we torture him, only then will he know this. We find of the last three plagues, are of the of magnitude of supernatural. But let us look at the plague of darkness. <laughs> it wasn't just dark. It was a dark that you felt you walk out sometimes and feel a good mist like this morning or yesterday you feel the fog you feel the mist it wasn't mist this morning, it was rain this morning it was rain, (laughs) yesterday, yesterday was fog today's Wednesday, right? yeah Uh, it's been a week Rashi tells us, Lama Hevi Aleim Why was darkness brought upon the Egyptians? Because it was funny. Says Rashi, Yisrael, the Jews searched. Viro, and they saw as Kalehem their vessels. Because the Egyptians were hiding all their valuables. And when the Jews left Egypt, and they asked them, Could you lend me a pot, a pan, or a goblet? Something of gold, of silver? And the Egyptians, why you aiming the Egyptians and say, I don't have anything. Emberlay the Jew told him I saw it in your house and it's in this and this place. There's another explanation that during the plague 
all the Jews did not want to leave Egypt passed away. During this first three days, and were buried the next day, so nobody should see, the Egyptians should not see the embarrassment of the Jews. But according to Rashi, where Rashi says, the Jews searched, we see from this that it's not similar to what the Medrash Tanchuma says. The Medrash Tanchuma says, that during the time of Cheshach, it was dark by the Egyptians. But for the Jews, all the gold and silver was illuminated. And because it was illuminated, they saw where to go to get it. But rather, Rashi says no. They had to search for this. It's like a mystery. So obviously, this is a total different story. They had to search. They were not given miraculous ways of finding it. They had to really indulge in the action. Perhaps we can explain this. The commandment of the Almighty. It is a commandment that Ibishta says to them, Litzarev Behenas Abriyes. The Almighty likes it that the people of the earth do their mitzvahs on their own accord. Not miraculously. And thereby, by doing the mitzvah, they are elevating and they are purifying all the physical creations that are involved in the doing of this mitzvah. So according to this we understand when the Almighty says to them it should not be done miraculously the saving of the Egyptians but rather it should be done in a natural way. What is natural? (coughs) Says Rashi that not it was illuminated for them, but rather they had to search for it. And therefore being a natural way, rather than miraculous, and therefore doing the mitzvah and the Tzaltimus Mitzrayim, the way that it is supposed to. We have a pasuk in this week's parsha, which is relevant to us on a daily basis, and we say it every day in the tefillah. <laughs> <laughs> 
in the Sheish Zechirot, the six memories. The Pasuk says, We got to the Mincha Bayemu Lamer, Bavurzeh, Osa, Shemli, Betsaisim, Mitraim, and the Balagoda of Pesach also uses this Pasuk, telling us that this is the basis of Passover, of Pesach holiday, of the Higarta Levincha. One must tell their son. Rashi tells us, well the Gemara actually derives from this, and this is one of the twelve Pesukim that the children studied by heart, how do we know that? Every generation, the person must see themselves as if they themselves are leaving Egypt. Um... You might live in Queens, which is a Gullus. You might live in New Jersey, which is also a Gullus. So if you go into Brooklyn, from any of those places, you might feel that, yeah, you went out of Egypt. So you can get that premonition, that feeling of a cold over there. In Georgia, they have a cat, so they're not in Gullus. But bottom line, to feel thousands of years ago they left Egypt, and to feel that today as if I'm leaving Egypt today, it's not practical. It's not the norm. To expect that. The Maral Prague writes In the Gvuris of Hashem, in the strengths of the Almighty God, when the Jews left Egypt, not only they left the land of Egypt physically. But they caused an effect that the Jewish nation was now a free people. I don't say this in, in any Middle East countries, because they say, yes, Jewish blood is free. That's the means of free people. Their blood is free, and you can spill it whenever you want. But then again, we have a president named Hussein. No, it's not a joke at all. The concept of the Jewish nation being free was brought about when the Jewish nation left Egypt. For after the Almighty took us out of Egypt, He gave us this essence of being free people. 
and higher it is, and more importantly, this is such a high level of freedom that there is no exile that can possibly restrain it, refrain that take it away from us. Therefore we find that when the Jews left Egypt when the Jews left Egypt they, de- they developed the idea of freedom I hope you're on, I called you. You didn't have to call me. I got the text. So we find, therefore, once the Jews left Egypt, it's impossible for a Jew to be a slave. A Jew can no longer be a slave to anybody, because we are automatically, we are spiritually considered B'nai Cheren. And Dr. Rebbe writes this in Tanya as well. This is something that's totally opposite of nature. Anything that's the opposite of nature, the Almighty has to constantly work on. The Almighty has to constantly supply the miracle so that it should exist. If the Almighty should for one moment take away this miraculous effort, then the miracle returns to naught, as we spoke about last week. So since the Jew is a B'nai Chayden, a free person in his essence, and can never be a slave, that concept is only brought about miraculously, which is higher than nature completely. And therefore this miracle constantly is re- invented over and over. So if the Tetzah, if the outcome, if the result, direct result of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim was that the Jews become now B'nai Chayrin, then therefore, then therefore, we are now B'nai Chayrin on a constant basis. And how do we remain B'nai Chayrin? Only because the Almighty re-gives that, rejuvenates that miraculous action. Can you pass the fresco and stop playing the game? Get the goat. Huh? You got the goat? He's <laughs> <laughs> playing Pakistani games. And therefore we are capable of Bechol Devader to lead us as Atzmeh Kiliyotzim in Mitzrayim because we are indeed still 
reaping the benefits of the Jewish nation leaving Egypt. Because we are still free people because of it. And we are constantly free. We always will have the concept of Bnei Chedin in us to an extent that we can never be servants ever again. 1928. We were slaves again. We're not slaves. Exiled, but not slaves. In the month of Elul, the Fiedic Rebbe published a pamphlet called Kinyan Chaim. And he sent this out to all the Hasidim that still lived in Russia. Fiedigrebbe was not physically well, he had suffered a heart attack. As the convalescent period ended, Fiedigrebbe resumed saying my modem and continued to publish them. Nineteen forty Tovshin. 5700 the Fiyadik arrives other Shani, the ninth of other Shani in the shores of the United States of America and again the Rebbe begins to resume his custom every week of reciting a Maimah and this practice went on for almost two years until after Shabbos Pasha's boy, which was the 13th of Shvat, 5702, Tavshin Beis, 1942. That Shabbos, the Friedrich Rebbe was in Chicago, and he said, the Maime, Ani Shorcha Vanaova, His mother, though, Rebetzin Shtanisara, had remained in New York and she passed away that Shabbos afternoon. The next Maimah thereafter was Shavuos. Huh? She's buried right between Rebetzin Chaim Mushka and Rebetzin Chamedina. You know the Pitzel family? Huh? Pinson? Pinson? Yeah. Yes. There was something Yeah, he got engaged. She got married. She's a good married. Thought he was married. Yeah, he was married. Took a little bit Everything right now. Sorry, from then until the summer of 5705, Fidi really said a Maima. Once again, he wrote and published them. And he specified what dates they should be studied. We know Shvuas, the Rebbe always said a Maima, though.
There were a few other occasions as well, but Shavu is for sure. The last Maimush that I ever said, the feeling that I ever said, was Yudbeis Tammuz, Tovshin Hay, which is 1945, and I believe there was also a medical issue thereafter, there a stroke, whatever it was, the feeling that I ever suffered. The year later he suffered the stroke. Fidi Greber then began to re- take all the Maimodim that didn't make it here to America, had them rewritten, got manuscripts from people that had written them over, that had copied, transcribed them. And he did, a, he did three changes into the Maimodim. He divided the Maimodim into chapters. He added a short summary at the end of each chapter and new beginnings for each Maimah or many of them the Maimah Basi Lagani Fidig Rebbe gave out to be learned on Yud Shvat was the first of what's called a Hemshech a Hemshech is a few Maimodim continuing Continuous Maimodim. There were four continuous Maimodim that I've compiled. It's not good. They're moldy? Yeah. They taste sour. Yeah, they get sick. They're sour. Bosni the Ghani was to be learned in Yudshvat, which was the yard side of his grandmother, Rebbe Tzirifka, the Rebbe Marash's wife. Hayashavis Beganim was the second Maimodim of the Semshech. Was supposed to be learned Yud Gimel Shvat, Yatzer of his mother, Ebitzin Shtern Esara. These two, my mother, originally, one of them was said in Tavshin, Tavresh Ayin Gimel, Tavresh Pei Gimel, I'm sorry, in 1923. Fidgab did not have the chance. To change the maim, to put the maim of Bosi Ligani into the paragraphs and have Kitsurim. He divided them into chapters, but the summaries and the headings he was going to write later, and ultimately did not do that. Shabbos Pashas Boy. Shabbos Pashas Boy. Tovshin Yud at 10 to 8 in the morning. Dr. Zelikson was called to the Rebbe. The Rebbe was not looking well. And Dr. Zelikson had seen this happen before where the Rebbe had suffered minor heart attacks. And he injected the Rebbe into the heart. And the Rebbe came back. This time, unfortunately, he injected the Rebbe twice in the heart. The police came with oxygen. And at 10 after 8, 8.07 in the morning, Friedrich Rebbe was nostalgic. 
at the time in the room was Dr. Zelikson, who was a Yisrael, Reb Shmuel Levitin, who was a Levi, and the Bach Shalom Be'aychon, who was a Kayin. These people were in the room, a Kayin, Levi, and Yisrael were in the room when the Fidigab was in Stalik. Ultimately, the Levi was called for 12 o'clock Sunday, took place 12.30. They reckoned, or they tried to insist, that the Rebbe take over the mantle immediately. To which the Rebbe was very, very apprehensive. But during the course of the year, the Rebbe fabrained on Shabbos Varkim, he took some requests from people. The secretary of the Fidig Rebbe, Abilio Simpson, who was the secretary in charge of the Echidus, private audiences with the Fidig Rebbe, from Tavshin till Tavshin Yud, had a dream which the Fidig Rebbe appeared and told him. I asked him, why are the spirits of the Chsidim depressed? And Rabbi Simpson answered, we have no one to go to. And the Fidik Rebbe answered, isn't my son-in-law, and he said that Rebbe's name with you? Rabbi Simpson said, but he refuses to accept an Asiyas upon himself. He refuses to accept the mantle. And the Rebbe answered him, he was already commanded to do so. Rabbi Simpson found the first opportunity. He told the Rebbe the dream. And the Rebbe answered, I have not received such instruction. <coughs> Immediately Rabbi Simpson went with several elder chassidim to the gravesite of the previous Rebbe, now known as the Eil. And they read a letter, a pan. And after they read the letter, the Rebbe never said again, I did not get instructions. was asked by the Rebbe to fabrain for the Bachrim every Sukkot. And he told the story, he tells the same story every year, told it every year, uh, Rabbi Aaron Kazanovsky was a, re- a relation of the Rebbe as well. He was one of the three chassidim who placed a notice in the papers, the Yiddish papers, announcing that on, top, on Yud Shvat, Tov Shin, Yud Aleph, there will be a Fabrengen, and the Rebbe will accept the request from the chassidim to become Rebbe. The next day the Rebbe called him into his room, and told him he must put in, in the very next publication, a notice of retraction. Rabbi Kazanovsky said, Rebbe, can I tell you something? Rebbe said, yes. He said, last night I had a dream. The feeding Rebbe came to me and told me, tell my son-in-law, and he mentioned your name, 
the following explanation. It says in the Pasuk, the Almighty said to Moshe, Why do you scream to me? Why are you crying to me? Tell the Jewish nation, travel onward. Tell my son-in-law, why are you telling everyone that I, the Friedrich Rebbe, am the Rebbe? You should speak to the Jewish nation and they will travel. They'll be elevated with you until the coming of Mashiach Tzidkenu. The Rebbe thanked him for the good news and said, since you gave me good news, I'll show you good news. And the Rebbe showed Rabbi Kazanovsky a telegram that he received from Rabbi Herzog, the chief rabbi of Israel, congratulating and blessing the Rebbe becoming the seventh Rebbe of Lubavitch. Ultimately, the Rebbe took the Panim of Chassidim to the Eil, and the Rebbe read many letters that day by Yitzchvat, was one letter though it was called the Mikhtav Eskashus. The Mikhtav Eskashus was a letter signed by thousands of Chassidim throughout the world. There was one Chassid of Avram Parij undertook to travel the world and collected thousands of signatures from all the Chassidim all over the world, signing and telling the Rebbe, we want you as our Rebbe, we are going to be Mekusha to you. As the Rebbe read this letter by the Friedrich Rebbe's gravesite, he cried very, very strong. The Rebbe then finally by the Fabregen said, <coughs> There's an American custom. When a new era begins, the person has to make a statement of intent. My statement is, the love of Hashem, the love of His Teda, the love of every Jew is one thing and inseparable. If a Jew is lacking one of these loves, it should be strengthened. And through this love for every Jew, we will go out of the bitter gullus. There's much more to talk about. Hopefully, Mietz Hashem. You join us on Matzah Shabbos, our Malava Malka. Birthday party! And we will continue in all the other rest of the story of the Kabbalah Sanasiyas and of many other happenings. For all those who can't and make therefore, it. Therefore, we don't want to hear anything that people can't make it. Uh, like everybody at 8 o'clock. 347. Matzah Shabbos, Kedish. And we should be able to go this Shabbos. As the Rebbe said, with the Avas Yisrael, Avas Hashem, Avas Atera, we should talk and go and greet Mashiach. This Shabbos, Yud Shvat, Tav Shinayin Gimel, we will be in Yerushalayim, Yerakadosh, Shabbat Shalom to all. Hurt, man. Oh, oh my